Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the ME Show. My name's Gary Burgess, I was diagnosed with ME last year, and together with the ME Association, I'm hoping this podcast series will give you an insight into different aspects of ME, which is also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Well, it's been quite a week in the world of ME awareness raising, with a range of activity across the UK coordinated by the ME Association, including a day of coverage across the BBC, which included a new documentary called M.E. and Me. And then the millions missing events in towns and cities right across the world, organised by M.E. Action. Also this past week, lots, and I do mean lots, of feedback from you about the first episode of The M.E. Show, which featured an interview with Jennifer Breyer and music from Robert Saunders. Thank you for every email and message and tweet and Facebook comments and internet forum post. I've read them all, or at least every one that I could find, and I've been blown away by your kindness and by your support. I was actually really, really nervous about sending episode one live. Would anybody listen to it? Would it be useful? Would people actually like it? Well, It's been overwhelmingly positive. Some criticism, uh, particularly that I didn't talk more about the millions missing events in episode one. Uh, I thought we did talk about it in some detail, but I do note the feedback. Thank you so much and keep it coming. On Twitter, you'll find me at Gary Burgess CI. And if you use the hashtag The ME Show, I should be able to find it that way. This week on the programme... Well, I speak to Dr. Charles Shepherd, the medical advisor to the ME Association and a world-renowned expert on ME. He himself was diagnosed with it back in the 1970s, a moment that completely changed his career trajectory. Many doctors of my generation, like myself, left medical school believing that this was an illness they weren't going to see and if they did see a case of it, then the patients were hysterical. That's what I knew about Emmy when I left medical school. Charles also featured in this week's BBC documentary that I mentioned called Emmy and Me. It was presented by Emma Donohoe. Here's a taster. It doesn't bother me to pass out. I do it so, so much. It's... Right, I'm not going to do anything to make you pass no, out. No, it's fine if it's going to help with the data. Emmy affects around 250,000 people in the UK. The second he starts getting loud again, obviously, he's out the door because... You know, it, it's just agony for her, uh, and it's something that she hates. It's something that she thinks she's a bad mother because she can't stand his own voice. What kind of mother can't tolerate her own child? It often develops in your late teens or early 20s. It's more common in women, and even the government accepts it's a poorly understood illness. If you've not yet watched the documentary... I highly recommend it. I think you'll find it a fascinating watch. You'll find the link to it in the show notes. Now, though, our interview with Dr. Charles Shepherd, And I began by asking him how his own ME diagnosis came about. I'm a doc and I went to medical school like most docs. And if we start there, which is probably a good place to start because quite a lot of the history of this illness is very relevant to where we are now in relation to the many problems we have with it. Um, Back in the late 1960s, early 70s, when I was at the Middlesex Hospital doing my medical training, um, I was told that this illness was all hysterical nonsense. Go away, forget about it. And this was because there'd been an outbreak of this illness in 1955 at the Royal Free Hospital in London. 
Um, it had been written up in the Lancet as a genuine medical condition. That's where it's got its name, myalgic encephalomyelitis. It was in a, an editorial in the Lancet. And all the patients, patients were mainly doctors and nurses at the Royal Free Hospital who'd gone down with this illness, um, were written up as case histories in the Lancet. And what then happened was that there wasn't a great deal of interest taken following the Royal Free outbreak. And two psychiatrists at the same hospital I was working at in the Middlesex produced a paper on the Royal Free disease. They didn't interview the patients. They just rummaged through the old case notes. They didn't talk to the consultants that were involved. And they put this paper into the British Medical Journal in 1970 and described the Royal Free outbreak as mass hysteria. So many doctors of my generation, like myself, left medical school believing that this was an illness they weren't going to see, and if they did see a case of it, then the patients were hysterical, and that's what I knew about Emmy when I left medical school. And then I went off, um, like many people with this condition, very fit, active, young adults, never had any sort of medical problems, emotional, mental health problems or whatever, um, went off and did my hospital jobs. And it was in the late 70s, I was working at Sirencester Hospital, and I, as a child, I'd never had chicken pox, which had been unusual. And we had a patient on the ward with a very nasty case of shingles, and I picked up a dose of chicken pox from shingles, which is what you can do. I, I, I can still remember this weekend of, of starting this illness, as many people with ME will, you know, very clearly de predate the onset of their illness to a very specific event. I still picture this weekend of just not feeling well, not feeling right. I, I was physically knackered. I couldn't do what I would normally be doing um, out, um, you know, on my weekend off. My brain wasn't functioning. So, something had gone strangely wrong. And then the Monday, all the chickenpox um, rash and everything else appeared, and I went into the hospital. I was sent home because I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to work, and I got a, a chickenpox rash uh, emerging. Um, so I was off for about 10 days, and the chickenpox went away, as it did. But, again, classic history of, of ME. I got an infection. And I just was not right afterwards. I was supposed to be recovering from this infection, but I was left with all these typical ME symptoms. I had muscle fatigue. Um, I, I couldn't do what I wanted to do from, from the physical point of view. My brain wasn't functioning. My temperature control had gone, gone off course. My balance was, was off. Um, strangely, I, I, I've always enjoyed a pint. And I, I had this curious, and I think it's a very interesting diagnostic feature of this illness. I had complete alcohol intolerance. I just felt really awful with alcohol. Um, so that's, that's how I got into this illness, through, through personal experience, as I say, many, many years ago. And I'm guessing at that point, you're not joining the dots. You're thinking, I've had chicken pox, I can link that to the shingles on the ward... I've perhaps got this lurgy, something's not right, but, but I'm, I'm guessing that ME label at that very moment in time didn't exist in your mind? Well, it, it, it didn't. It didn't even cross the, cross the radar. And at that point, you see, I mean, we still have this major problem with people getting an early and accurate diagnosis. But at this point, it wasn't even on my radar as a doctor. I kept going back. I mean, it's a typical history of, of people from, from
from the early days of this illness, I kept going back to my doc. Uh, my doc said, you, you know, you're clearly not well, uh, but I don't know what's the matter with you. <laughs> I don't know what to advise. My natural instinct um, as a doctor, because this is what doctors did, you, you, as a doc, you're, you're not really allowed to be ill. So I, I just kept going back to work, coming off sick again, going back to work, going to the doc, not getting any helpful advice as far as either diagnosis or management. And then I started taking myself off around all kinds of eminent consultants who were, were all incredibly nice and helpful in the way that they could be. I went to some muscle specialists, neurologists, immunologists, whatever. Um, and again, uh, they, they all said, you know, there's something wrong, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, it, uh, you, you're then getting into this awful area because you don't have a diagnosis. And you're either, you're getting no management advice or you're getting bad management advice. And I have to say, in my case, it was, was largely no management advice. But the problem was my inclination as, as you know, a previously fit, active person was the, the, the way to get out of this was, was just get, get on with life yeah. and, you know, exercise and whatever. And that was my natural action. Of course, of course that's, that's bad management advice. So I was going off trying to walk my way out of it, trying to do, you know, little runs again and things <laughs> like that. And the light really sort of came on almost two years into this awful process of no diagnosis, no management, when I, I did a, a really sort of thorough search of the literature because I was just getting so fed up, frustrated, whatever, and I came across this <laughs> royal free disease, myalgic encephalomyelitis, and looked at all these symptoms, infection, muscle symptoms, brain symptoms, flu-like symptoms, I thought, well, this is exactly what I've got. And I'd been told at medical school this didn't exist, or if it did, it was hysteria. Strangely enough, at that time, there was a chap called Professor Peter Bean up in um, Glasgow. And Peter Bean was in, uh, is still alive, um, a neurologist, a distinguished neurologist. And he worked at the Institute of Neurological Sciences in Glasgow. And he'd got together with Dr. Melvin Ramsey, who was the consultant physician in infectious diseases at the Royal Free back in 1955, who'd seen all these patients. And Peter was seeing patients up in Scotland with this because there'd been an outbreak a bit similar to the Royal Free, but an infectious disease outbreak um, involving some people on the Clyde up there. And he'd started seeing these patients and come to the conclusion there was something going wrong. And his wife, fortunately, Mina, worked in muscle disease. She was a clinical pathologist, but she was interested in muscle disease. And Peter had um, other colleagues in the hospital who were interested in immunology and virology. And there was a small group of them starting to work on this from the biomedical point of view. And I read some of Peter's stuff. And I also, at that time, um, found out that, that Melvin Ramsey and his colleague, uh, although they'd retired, um, were still around. And I actually managed to get an appointment with Melvin Ramsey, saw him and his colleague um, up at the Royal Free. And they said, you've, you've got Emmy, you've got Royal Free disease, you've got a classic case of it. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's no, there's no real treatment to it but at the moment, but of course what you've been doing hasn't helped your recovery. In fact, it's, it's probably made you, you worse and, and, you know, you're in the condition now where you're not able to um, return to work. But what I suggest you do is go up and see Peter because um, he's very interested in this. And I went and saw Peter and he confirmed the, the diagnosis. And then from then onwards, and we're now getting into the early 80s, 
Um, I got involved with Professor Peter Byrne and some of the muscle research he was doing and started doing my own research and getting involved in this, this illness from all aspects of it. And, uh, you know, the good news about all this was that I finally got a diagnosis and someone had given me some sensible advice, particularly about pacing my activities. And I, I think with a, with a number of things, particularly relating to, to, to pacing and just getting the balance right between activity and rest, um, I, I did make some progress. So, you know, good news there, even after a long period of time of being unwell and bad management, um, I started to make, make progress. It was slow, it was erratic, but over a period of, what, really several years, um, I, I did make some progress and improvement. And, and where are you now? I mean, how is your health today? Well, like most people with this illness, I, I haven't recovered. Um, I've improved. People may be familiar with a, a disability rating scale that we publish at the MEA. It's in the MEA Purple Book as well. Um, and I think it, it, it helps people get some sort of rough idea of where they are in percentage terms in compared to you know what they would normally feel like physically and mentally. Um, and, and I use that all the time. I advise my patients to use it for all kinds of purposes, benefit purposes, but just, just generally keeping an eye on how they're doing. <laughs> and I think I function on my scale probably somewhere between about 60 and 70% of what I'd regard as normal self most of the time. There are ups and downs. I still get exacerbations. I wouldn't call them relapses, but I get exacerbations as most people do, if I get another infection, that brings me right down and it may be bring me down for two or three weeks and uh, then I crawl back to my 60-70%. But I, I think it brings in this, this whole issue of what happens to people with this illness, the prognosis of it, that people make some degree of improvement. Not everyone does and, and we know that 25% of people with this illness are, are severely affected, certainly at some stage. Um, of the condition, but around about 75% will make some degree of improvement, but then they hit this dreadful, I call it the glass ceiling, whereby you, you just get back to, like I guess, 70%, and it's very difficult then to, you know, get the final hurdle done and get back to full normal health. I, I've not managed to achieve that. We're 30 years on into my illness now, and I suspect it's not going to happen. So that's what I live with. I, I'm, as I put it to people, I, I'm vertical all day normally. <laughs> um, and I, fortunately, my mental functioning has improved remarkably. So that's almost, I would say, almost back to normal. My physical functioning is, is not what it should be. But it, again, it's improved. So to, to a large extent, I, I live fairly normal life apart from the fact that I, I can't do really physically active things. Just thinking back and obviously we're going back many years now to that period of time when you were grappling for as I call it a label for a diagnosis. Um, mm. One thing I experienced during my relatively short 286 days finding a diagnosis and I, I hold on to every one of those days as, as an extraordinary chapter in my life. There were moments when I was feeling quote unquote okay and that okay might have been an hour, it might have been a morning, it might occasionally have been a whole day when I suddenly believed I was making it up and was feeling guilty 
about telling people I wasn't well. Have you been through any of that? I've been through the first part, which is, and I have to say, they're, they're, they're fairly short, short-lived periods. And, and it's an interesting aspect of this illness that it's, it's probably something that I've had throughout the whole illness. And I think it's something that many people do describe, where you just get periods. I mean, in my case, I have to say they're fairly short periods. But, you know, you, you do get periods during the day when you feel as though you're absolutely you know, you, you're almost back to normal. Um, and it may go on for 10, 15 minutes or so, and then, you know, it's, it's, that's not what the case is. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say the second part, I've, I've never had any sort of self-doubts about what, what was going on. I've never sort of felt, oh, am I really ill, that sort of thing. This, despite the fluctuation, and we, and we know this is a, you know, one of the hallmarks of this illness, it is a fluctuating medical condition. The symptoms are extremely variable throughout the day, from day to day, from week to week, from month to month. Um, despite that characteristic of it, I, I've, I've never had any sort of self-doubts as to what was, what was going on. I've, I've never sort of felt that, you know, am I really ill? Um, or the other thing is, is as, as is often suggested to people with this illness, it, it's been suggested to me in the past on occasions, um, have you got what is basically some sort of psychological problem yeah. going on? Are you on? hysterical? Is it... <laughs> is, is it I've, I've never actually been accused of being hysterical, interestingly. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I'm you know, glad to hear I, it. I think, I think partly because, it's, yeah, actually, you know, hysteria hysteria has sort of gone out the window as far as the medical profession is concerned. It's, it's not a term that's generally used by doctors. They're, they're, they're much keener on using other bits of nomenclature for when they, when they believe patients have um, uh, not got symptoms which have any sort of organic physical basis to them. So what, what in your, your early medical career or career in medicine were, was an illness has now become your life's work in effect? And I'm imagining if you rewind that that wasn't your plan at that point. No, it certainly wasn't my plan at all. I, I was, was going to enter general practice. That was what I always wanted to be. I was brought up in, in, the, in, in, in the very rural part of Yorkshire. I, I used to spend my time, I spent most of my time going around with the vet. I eventually, <laughs> I wanted to be a sort of James Herriot vet to start with and spent my school days wandering around with the local vet. Um, but then I changed my mind just before going off to um, med school. Uh, well, it was changing my mind from vet school to med school. I thought I'd, I'd actually at the end of the day preferred to do this with humans um, and, and just wanted to be a, a sort of country Doctor, um, like you know, go back to Doctor Finley's case book, and it's all like gone that. horribly wrong. <laughs> um, and that that never came about because I decided that I would do my own sort of, uh, if you like, GP training course. So my my early years were spent doing a variety of of hospital posts. I've done hospital medicine in psychiatry, interestingly enough, um, but also in infectious diseases, respiratory medicine, surgery, casualty paediatrics um you know I, i've done quite a, a variety of different hospital posts and it was at the time uh, as i say when i when i picked up this dose of chicken pox from one of my patients i was at a place called sirencester memorial hospital which was a uh, i wouldn't describe it as a cottage hospital it was somewhere between a cottage hospital and a and a small district general hospital but it was where you did everything under the sun from casualty to paediatrics to 
um, to almost whatever whatever came in. So it was a very interesting place to to work, and and I was about to finish my what I thought was this this uh, period of doing all these hospital posts and and going into general practice, and you know that that didn't occur. But then. I had, as I say, I had this awful period of, of going back to work, going off sick, going back to work. And for a period, um, I did actually go back into general practice or start doing general practice in Malvern, uh, in Worcestershire, but I had to give that up. I, I, I couldn't cope with hospital medicine and my, my foray into general practice feeling feeling really quite ill. That came to an end. It came to a very sad end because one day I was out on call um, dealing with an emergency. There was a patient with, with very bad asthma. And I, I just came to the conclusion that I was, was, was not safe going out doing emergency medicine when I was ill. Oh, goodness. goodness. So I, 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 abandoned, I abandoned the National Health Service and general practice at really quite an early stage in, in my medical career. Um, and really for the past 30, I suppose almost 30 years now, I've been involved in all aspects of this illness, clinical aspects, research in particular aspects, but uh, really everything that goes with being medical advisor to the to the ME Association. I find myself getting absolutely lost in the the breadth and, and range of information when it comes to what's happening with ME research. Um, I find some of it confusing. I find some of it contradictory. Uh, I find some of it like it's written in a foreign language. I really just don't understand it. Where are we at today in, in simple, not dumbed-down terms, but in simple terms when it comes to understanding and perhaps managing or treating this, this illness, this disease? I think you've, you've identified the, <laughs> some of the key problems from the patient point of view, as, as you say. The, the information now out there in, in relation to research is, is vast. Um, I try and keep up to date with the research, obviously. Um, but, I mean, just from my point of view, we're probably getting two or three research papers being published every week. Um, I have to say, many of them are not of any great importance. Some of them are pretty poor. Um, but there's an awful lot of research being published in this in this area. As I say, some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's some of it's indifferent. Um, and it is confusing not only for doctors, but it's also confusing for patients because sometimes this research findings are conflicting. Sometimes, especially the laboratory-based research, is very difficult to understand. Um, and it's very difficult to understand unless it's your particular ology. So unless you're an immunologist, it may be very difficult to understand some of the research findings in relation to all these immune parts of the orchestra, like T cells and B cells and um, autoantibodies and things like that. It is difficult, but um, your question is really, in very simple terms, where, where do I think we are? And the way I would normally explain this to my medical colleagues before going into a bit more detail is to say, I, I think we're dealing with a, a three-stage illness, and that involves what I like to call three Ps. So there are things that predispose people to this illness, there are things that precipitate it, and there are things that perpetuate it. And what's becoming clear is that there are probably genetic factors involved in predisposing people to getting this illness when the right trigger 
factor comes along, and this is not um, unique. We know that people with you know heart disease, breast cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, a whole range of conditions where your genetics, when the right environmental factor comes along, um, are predisposing you to getting that particular disease. It doesn't mean you're passing heart disease, rheumatoid arthritis or whatever from, from parents to children, but you are passing on genes which may increase your risk of, of developing something like this. Sure. Um, and then the second P is what precipitates it or triggers it. And we know... Now, I think we've got pretty good evidence, and I think there's agreement across the whole medical spectrum here, that probably around 75% of people who develop this illness, it, it follows an infection, um, like my own case. There are some people who follow um, some other, in jargon, what we call another type of immune system stressor, and, and their vaccinations seem to play a role, and I have particular research interest in vaccinations. I probably have the largest cohort of people who have developed ME following a vaccination, hepatitis B in particular. And then where it does get messy and confusing and the disagreements occur is, is what the third P, which is the perpetuation, what really keeps it going. And here it does get complex because, in jargon, this is a, a definitely a multi-system disease. It's not just affecting one body system like joints or brain or immune system. It's involving a number of different body systems in particular. Um, and, I mean, this is where there's, there's quite a degree of consensus amongst what's coming through from the research that there are brain abnormalities, and I think in terms of brain abnormalities, the simplest way of understanding is that there are various thermostats, if you like, in the brain that control various body functions. Um, and one of them in particular is called the autonomic nervous system, which controls blood pressure, pulse rate, and things like that. That seems to be upset. The hypothalamus in the brain seems to be upset where um, this is a tiny part of the brain that controls um, temperature because um, people with this illness have a lot of problems with temperature control. They feel hot when it's cold. They're very sensitive to cold weather, things like this. Um, there are muscle abnormalities, and uh, a lot of the research now is looking at a part of the muscle called the mitochondria. These are the, if you like, the sort of Duracell batteries within um, muscle, and friendly in other tissues as well, particularly in muscle. And we've seen there's growing evidence from a number of different research areas, and it's, it's an area where I've, I've also done some of my own research, and it's been published in The Lancet, and we're going back to the early 80s there, showing that there is a, a problem in the way the muscle creates energy, particularly within these, these battery-like things called the mitochondria. And then we have all these immune system abnormalities. Um, and the interesting aspect there is that it's starting to emerge that what may well be happening is that the viral infection comes along, triggers an immune system response, as any infection does, because when you get a dose of flu or whatever, what makes you feel ill are these things called cytokines, immune system chemicals. And it seems to be that the immune system in people with ME stays in this low-level activation stage as though it's still trying to fight this infection and producing these cytokines. And that may well be why people feel um, continually sort of flu-like under the weather um, and, and all these sort of ongoing sore throats, glands, and, and other flu-like um, things. So what keeps it going is, I think, this complex interaction between 
brain abnormalities, muscle abnormalities, immune system abnormalities, um, and, and they're all sort of interacting and producing their own different sort of muscle, brain, and immune system symptoms. That's a very simple explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Does this multi-system theory means me sitting here waiting for the breakthrough on tackling this is unlikely because of the nature of what it is? I, I wouldn't use the word unlikely, but it, it does make it difficult. Um, I mean, let's, let's be on the positive side. Because we are now starting to get these clues, and quite important clues, about what's going on as far as the underlying disease process, we are starting to move from the position, where, uh, which is the position at the, at the moment, where we are largely using drugs to treat symptoms. So we may be able to help with pain and sleep and things like that with drugs that, that, that doctors would use for a whole range of conditions to try and help with pain and sleep and irritable bowel or whatever. But because we're starting to identify abnormalities in brain, immune system and, and muscle, um, which are rather more specific to the disease and are, if you look in other diseases, amenable to treatments, um, then we are starting to get clues as to drugs that are, are, are worth trying. I mean, one example here, just going back to this immune system activation and these cytokines and low-level inflammation, um, I mean, this is something that happens in rheumatoid arthritis. And in rheumatoid arthritis, you move from drugs which just help to try and control the pain and inflammation in arthritis to drugs which can now dampen down this, this inflammatory immune system response that occurs there. And some of these drugs, I think we would be, you know, there's some initial evidence that they may be helpful in, in MECFS. So I, I, I think there is a role you know, there to play for drugs that we, we, we already have, which are being used in other conditions, which may be helpful in, in ME. Are trials you of know, this happening at the moment? Well, they're, they're, they are, um, and like a lot of um, the history of this illness with both history and treatment, it's a bit snakes and ladders. So many people listening to this podcast will be aware of, of rituximab, and the Norwegians who use this drug, which is normally used, this is an immuno immunological drug, um, it's normally used to treat lymphoma, um, it, 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 it affects a part of the, the body called B cells, and these are cells that produce antibodies, and uh, you know, there's a good theoretical basis why it could help in ME, and they'd notice some of their patients with um, lymphoma had improved when they were given rituximab, and they did a small trial on this, they did another trial, um, and just small numbers of, of ME patients, and the results were really quite quite promising. Um, so then they moved on to what is called the gold standard trial, which is a, a, a phase three clinical trial, which was completed in um, two, the summer 2017. And uh, I think many of us were, were, were looking uh, quite optimistically towards the results of this trial and thinking that at last someone had actually found something that was going to help at least a, a specific subgroup of people with this illness. Sadly, um, the preliminary results that have been announced, the paper hasn't been published, but this big phase three trial hasn't confirmed these findings. So it looks as though rituximab is not the answer. But there we, 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 we've got an example where something has really been looked at in depth 
Um, it is possible, I suppose, that, that um, the big trial has missed the fact that there is a small subgroup where this, this drug could be effective. Uh, I'm not sure we've, we've written it off yet. We'll have to wait and see when the full results come out. But, you know, there are things, there are other drug trials as well going on at the, at the moment or being proposed based on this information that we're now getting through from the research field looking at these different types of, of abnormalities in muscle, um, brain, immune system. I mean, interesting enough, to you, you move on to muscle, there's a paper come out from Julia Newton's group um, up in Newcastle, very good research group, which have been looking at muscle and been funded by the ME Association to look at muscle. Um, and they've been looking at, at, if you like, sort of very much cellular muscle biopsy-based studies um, and seeing if there are drugs which can help some of the abnormalities at a, 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 a muscle biopsy level. Um, and there are some interesting results being published from them only, only recently. So there's the, the different, the, these different strands of um, uh, involvement, brain, muscle, immune system, um, are, are starting to open the doors to specific forms of treatment. And, and who pulls these strands together? If, if I think of them as almost like the different sections of an orchestra, who, who's the conductor in this? Is it is it nice? Is it at government <laughs> level, or is it is it you who who brings together the different bits of the picture to look at the the big overall picture? That's a very good question because the simple answer here in the UK is nobody. <laughs> I mean, on the positive side, we, we have different research groups doing different types of research and they do talk to each other okay. i mean let's be let's be positive about this um and they know each other and they meet at conferences or whatever and they're aware of what they're all doing um but we we, we don't have someone pulling everything together in the form of a, a unified research strategy and my my own feeling is that this is something that we need the national health and national institute of health in America have produced some money and are setting up a number of centres and it is just possible that the UK could get involved in this but they're, they're trying to set up um, you know, coordinated uh, research centres and getting everyone talking to each other and involved in, in the different components of this and this is something that ought to be happening in the UK um, it's not something the charity sector can, can really take on um, it's something where the Medical Research Council, I feel, could play a bigger role and possibly even take on a lead. It is something that the CFSME Research Collaborative, which we belong to, um, I think could play a more important role as well. The problem there is it, it doesn't have any staff, it doesn't have any money. It, it's something that, that needs to be done. There are routes that it could be done by, um, and, uh, you know, it, it is something that we need now that we are starting to get interesting research findings. And in particular, it's not only that, but it's also bringing in the pharmaceutical industry, which is something we are doing at the uh, research collaborative, to translate these research findings into something which is going to help at a very practical level uh, as far as patient management is concerned because that is that is something that that is often raised in relation to the research that we fund at the MEA people ask it's wonderful to be you know seeing all this research being done and all this lab-based research um, and we know it's getting published and you know you're finding interesting things 
but how is it helping me when I go to see my GP? <laughs> that's that's the thing that bothers me is that, you know, yeah. who is there above all of these wonderful specialists in their own individual silos? Because what those individuals may not realise is if they all got into a room at the same time, the answer may exist. Mm, mm, mm. But nobody knows it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the bottom line is that until you've got a reasonable understanding of what the underlying disease process is, um, you're, you're stuck with treating symptoms rather than treating what the actual disease is. Sure. Um, tell me about the biobank. I've, I've, I've seen the word biobank crop up in a number of articles. I've seen your name linked to the biobank, and, and people seem very excited about the potential of the biobank. What is it, and what is it there to do? Right, okay. Well, um, as people may know, um, the Emmy Association currently funds the basic running costs of the biobank. And just to give an illustration of what research costs, that costs us around about £80,000 per annum to uh, just basically keep the biobank going. But the biobank, which has now been running for probably about five years, um, is a very important part of what we call research infrastructure. In, in very simple terms, it's, it's a bank where we store blood samples. And the bank itself is at the Royal Free Hospital in London. It's part of the bigger University College uh, London Biobank, which is a very prestigious um, institution. So it's, it's, it's a big part of their, their biobank. In fact, it's one of the most active sub-biobanks within the UCL Biobank. And what we do is we... Um, find volunteers, and we have a very rigid protocol for finding volunteers who've, who've already got a diagnosis of MECFS, and these people have to be within a certain geographical radius of the Royal Free Hospital because we have to get these samples to the biobank where the samples are stored at, at very low temperatures in big cylinders and whatever. Um, so we identify people they are then clinically assessed again by our research nurse and it's very important that we include severe people in this so the caroline who's the research nurse there at the biobank goes around and visits severe people at home so we have uh, samples from severe um, people um, the samples are then couriered transported to the royal free they're processed and stored in the biobank and then they're made available to researchers anywhere and we're supplying people all over the world um, with these samples now who want to make use of samples and clinical data attached so what they get is they get the blood samples and they get all the clinical details on these patients and when they're reassessed during the, 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 the clinical assessment process we collect an enormous amount of information on their clinical symptoms, their onset, what finding on examination, what other investigations they've had done, etc., etc. So it's it's a very simple way and a very cost-effective way for researchers who may not have access to patients or just require lab-based um, research, so they just want to look at a particular part of the immune system or something like this, to get on and do it. They don't have to go to a, find a clinic, see patients, get the blood samples you know, sorted, which is a, a time-consuming and costly process. And they know that these samples are from people who've got very genuine MECFS. They all have to meet for CUDA and Canadian criteria. And 
they could get all kinds of clinical information tagged on along with this information. We've now got, I think, around about 500 um, patient samples. So that's people with ME-CFS, severe ME-CFS. We also have control groups, which is important, so you can compare to other conditions. So we have control groups from people with multiple sclerosis, and we have people with, um, who, are, who are just healthy controls as well. So there we are. We, we've, the charity sector has set up what is a vital piece of research infrastructure, which is now being well used by the research community. Um, it's a very costly thing to run, and we have tried to get funding from the Medical Research Council and other bodies to, to provide long-term funding for this. Um, hopefully this will come. And it's, it's now got an international reputation. Um, we, we started off with one large grant from the prestigious National Institute of Health in America to do virology and immunology research. That's underway. And last year we got an, a, a, a further large grant from the NIH to, to do this. It sounds really clever. And, and I think like, like the most clever things, as soon as you hear it, you think, that's bleeding obvious. So I'm delighted that that's happening and I hope that that helps aid progress when it comes to research. Um, well, I, I feel really proud of the Biobank. I feel proud that we've, we've helped to set it up, that we fund it, that we're very closely involved with it. And I have to say, uh, it would be nice to, to just thank um, Lewis, Eliana, Jack, uh, Caroline and all the staff at the Biobank because they really are dedicated, really dedicated people and they're really trying to help people with ME. I'm aware during the course of this conversation we've spoken a lot of big picture stuff, but the, the latest copy of ME Essentials magazine, which I recommend as, a, as somebody who's joined up as a member of the ME Association, there's, there's a really interesting spread from you about dealing with your GP, about getting the best out of that relationship. And there may be people listening to this podcast today who are at the early stages of trying to get a diagnosis or trying to effectively manage day-to-day from mild to moderate to severe ME. What is your best advice for somebody in a position today who's wanting to do something useful for themselves on that front? What's your advice? I think what I'm going to advise them is is to have a look at our, our literature list, which is available on the MEA website. It's also available as a pull-out in the magazine because we, we, we've written, or I've largely written, uh, along with our other medical advisors, um, information leaflets which cover just about every single aspect of this disease, whether it's you're wanting information on diet and nutrition, you're wanting information on how to deal with specific symptoms like pain, sleep, irritable bowel. You're wanting information on what a doctor should be doing as far as how they can diagnose MECFS. It's all there. It's you know, and it's it, it's very simple to obtain. So you know, make use of the information that we've got. If you've got a, a query that you know, is, is not there, is not being answered in the literature, make use of our social media, put a, put a query on our Facebook page. You'll get lots of replies from people who've got personal experience of that particular issue or problem. It may be something very specific of benefits or whatever, you know, can, can I go and one of the immediate extremes to mind, can I, can I record my medical assessment for a DWP medical assessment? Um, just pop it on Facebook. You know, people will come up with the answer to it. The information is, is, is out there. 
Um, my, my big grumble is that it's not, it shouldn't be up to the charity sector to be providing this. <laughs> yeah. um, and it really ought to be up to organisations like NICE to be you know, setting out this sort of comprehensive information. Sadly, as we all know, the NICE guideline, and we've seen this for many years, is not fit for purpose. NICE have finally got the message on this, the NICE guideline, is going to be rewritten, but the bad news there again is that it's starting from scratch. So this is a process which is going to take three years, and we're not going to get a nice guideline now till October 2020. In in the interim, is is the old guidance put on hold? Is the old guidance still the guidance, or 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 is it dependent on which medic you happen to speak to on which day of the week? <laughs> Um, at the moment, our understanding is that the NICE guideline remains active, and, and our big bone of contention here, of course, is that the, the, the NICE guideline recommendations relating to CBT, which most people don't find helpful, and graded exercise, which many people make their condition worse, um, remains in force, and that remains in force till till 2020. Now, we think that is unacceptable. Um, the forward ME group of charities, which is chaired by the Countess of Mar. Um, we are, you know, jointly concerned about this. We have written to NICE. We are in discussion with NICE about this. My personal view is, and, and NICE, I think, are very reluctant to go down this route because it's not something they would normally do. Um, they will certainly update a, a, a NICE guideline if some wonderful new treatment arrives. <laughs> um, but to turn around and say our guideline in certain respects isn't fit for purpose, um, please, you know, stop using CBT and graded exercise. It, it's not something they would normally do. In fact, I'm not sure they've ever done it. And we would like them to issue some sort of statement, some sort of health warning um, about the problems with the current guideline. As I say, at the moment, um, they are reluctant to do that or they're not willing to do that. But we're going to keep pressing on that because it's a very important point. Keep fighting the good fight. I, I know a mm. lot of people are, are grateful for, for for you and and the many people you've name checked and others. You strike me as a, an optimistic guy. I, I guess you have to be glass half full to keep doing what you're doing in the face of adversity. Mm. If if you and I sit down in a year from now, uh, are you optimistic that we will continue to make progress and and perhaps even some significant progress? Yeah, I, I think you've hit you've hit the nail on the head. We, we, you know, we, we're not going to come up with magic answers to this in in, in the way of what causes ME. Um, are we going to have an effective cure for this illness in, in in a year's time, or possibly even even five years' time? I think what it is, we are we are putting small pieces of uh, a medical jigsaw together. It is definitely starting to, to build up a good picture of what is going wrong in this illness. From that, we are learning about things which can you know, help people manage their illness more effectively. And more importantly, you know, starting to look at drugs which, which might actually affect the underlying disease process. It, it is going to be a slow, steady process. There are going to be ups and downs like rituximab. But I, I feel confident that over the next few years, we are going to find some sort of treatments which at least are going to help subgroups of people. They're not going to help everyone because this is, this is an illness where there's a lot of different clinical presentations and I think different sort of subgroups, both clinically and, and pathologically, going on. So uh, it, it is going to be a question of finding 
treatments that help individuals or groups of people rather than everyone with this. But I think the way things are going, especially the the momentum for biomedical research has really taken off, uh, I think, in the past sort of year or two. And, and I think people, because people like NICE have got the message that this is not a psychological complaint anymore, um, and I think this message is, is, is also filtering through quite high up in the Department of Health, um, I think we have the potential for making some real momentum now. Dr. Charles Shepherd, it's been a, a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you for joining me on the ME Show. Uh, thank you very much, Gary, for interviewing. Great. Well, I found that interview really interesting. Originally, we'd booked in 20 minutes into Dr. Charles's very busy diary, but we just kept talking and talking and talking, and I found it utterly fascinating. You'll find links to the things that Charles spoke about, including advice from the ME Association, more about the ME Biobank, and other things besides in the show notes. And you'll find those notes at meassociation.org.uk slash podcast. That's meassociation.org.uk slash podcast. And that is it for this week. If you subscribe to the ME show on iTunes, please, please, please rate and review us. It helps boost our rankings and hopefully that means more people will find us. And as I say, if you want to point others in our direction or to read the notes, head to meassociation.org.uk slash podcast. It would be just amazing if you're able to share that link with people you know so we can get more people tuning in. Next week on the programme, I speak to the MP Carol Monaghan. She led a debate in Westminster recently about the now discredited PACE trial, which has been used for many years by medics as a way of managing ME. I look forward to speaking to her, and I hope you'll join us for it as well. Until then, thank you so much for listening. I'm Gary Burgess. This is The ME Show. Bye for now. Bye for now.